0: Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. We are going to begin at uh, verse 16, and I will read all the way until 32, but we'll just focus on a smaller portion that's in here. And if you're following along in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 724. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds I judged them. But when they came to the nations wherever they came, They profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Now, beginning in verse 25 is what we're going to particularly focus on today. And you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would bear fruit among us. Father, we know that you create life with your word. You create everything with your word. It is the most powerful force in the universe. So now, Lord, we pray that the power of your word would be at work among us. And you would vindicate your holiness in and through our lives, as our lives are changed into your likeness by us beholding you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I think the passage that I read and the part that I particularly highlighted is a beautiful picture of what the gospel is. Look back there at verse 25 in Kind of bring to verse 25 all your feelings of your struggles with shame and guilt and your frustration that you you can't seem to live the Christian life as you would like to or your battle to have a clean mind. Bring all of that to chapter 36 verse 25 and, and listen to what it says there. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Friends, I I know the idols of my own heart, and that is encouraging, isn't it? God will cleanse us of those. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And later on, he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And friends, all those things that feel so good are all picked up in the New Testament and applied to believers in general. So we have every right to take those things and apply them to our lives if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. They are God's promises to us. However, to really understand this passage, and it's a beautiful passage, I think it's worth taking the time and effort to understand, we have to set it in its context. As great as those phrases sound to us, they mean so much more if we really understand how they're functioning in the book of Ezekiel and really the whole Old Testament and the New Testament as well. These are pivotal uh, verses here. We've got to understand the context. And that's going to take a little bit of work on our part, but, but we can do it. And in particular, I want to try to do a better job of explaining what I mean that I've explained for a couple weeks when I say that God has put himself into a predicament, into a bind. What does that mean? Well, look there at verse 20. It says that when God scattered the peoples, his people, in judgment, when he sent them out of the promised land into the other nations... That act of judgment, of sending out his people, defiled his name, and, and that I think should sound strange to us. Just you know, if we isolate that on it by itself, because I mean, God is judge, right? We certainly can think that, however we you know, any biblical sense of God should include judge in his job description. But we should have no trouble with God judging because he is God, right? That should not defile, God's judgment should not defile his name, except for the fact that God has made a covenant with his people never to forsake them. And it is that covenant that means that when God then judges his people and appears to have forsaken them, well, that's an assault against God's faithfulness, an assault against God's promise. Now, where is that promise that lies behind this passage that that creates then the tension? Well, uh, I think it's it's behind this whole passage, but we see it referenced explicitly in verse 28. Notice in verse 28, uh, God talks about the land that he gave to their fathers. So this is talking about the patriarchs, all the, the people that came before them in the Old Testament. And the father of the fathers is Abraham, Father Abraham, right? So this passage points back to the, the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham and. In order to help us understand what's going on in Ezekiel 36 better, I want to just very briefly walk you through God's covenant with Abraham and how this covenant is is ratified and renewed in uh, other generations. I've given you a sheet of paper that has the verses that I want to refer to very quickly on it, so we'll we'll go there quickly. Um, Let me just walk you through these. Genesis 15 is where God first makes his covenant with Abraham. Abraham is asleep. Notice this in verse 12. I'm just going to kind of walk through this. And when Abraham is asleep, in verse 12, he has this vision. And in this vision, he sees animals that he had cut. Verses 9 to 10 are explained that God had given Abraham instructions to take animals and literally cut them in half and then lay them out side by side um, on the ground. And then in verse 17... God appears in the form of a flame, a fire, and God walks through the animals. That sounds strange to our ears, I know, but it is actually very common in the Old Testament, um, or in the Old Testament time here, because what is going on here is a covenant ceremony. This is where nations would do this. The leaders of nations would cut animals in half, divide them up, and then the leaders of the nations would walk through those uh, animals when those nations were making an agreement, a pact with each other. And the purpose of that strange ritual of you know, dividing up the animals and walking through it was a very clear reminder, a very clear uh, I- illustration of what what is going to happen if you don't stay on the straight and narrow of the covenant that you've promised. If you turn to the right or to the left, you will be like the animals. That was what it illustrated. So they they did this covenant ceremony to show that you must keep the covenant. And God here is giving Abraham a vision of a covenant ceremony, a promise that is being made to Abraham. And God is figuratively walking through the animals. What's very important to notice in this covenant is what Abraham is doing at the time. He is sleeping. He is not a party in that covenant in the sense that he is promising something as well. This is a covenant that God is making to Abraham. God is saying, I will take it upon myself to fulfill these promises to Abraham. That's the kind of covenant that it is. We can call it unconditional, unilateral, it is not dependent upon Abraham's actions. It is only, or Abraham's children's actions, it is only dependent upon God's actions. It's a unilateral, unconditional covenant. Make sense? We see that covenant ratified and renewed in subsequent generations. Um, Deuteronomy 29, verse 13, Moses is explaining the covenant to the, the people, and he says, He that is God. Deuteronomy, may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God, just as he promised you. Again, God's promise to them. And he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is a renewal of the one-sided, unilateral covenant that God is making to the people that requires nothing of the people. but all of God, he's making it to them. One more one-sided covenant. This is with David. Here God is telling David how God will treat David's sons. Verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, when the king disobeys, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And then later on, God says, your throne shall be established forever. God is making, renewing, A unilateral covenant here. And he even says that human sin will provoke a reaction from God. God's not going to like it when the king sins, but that sin is not going to break the covenant. The humans don't have the ability to break the covenant because it is something that God has promised to them. However, we also see another kind of covenant in the Old Testament, that parallels this unconditional unilateral covenant. And we see it is a conditional covenant. Uh, Exodus 19. I'm going to only read one passage for this conditional covenant, but this is a very pivotal passage in all of the Old Testament, so it, it really drives the point home, I believe. Uh, this is comes right before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19, verse 5, God says this to the people. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. What's God saying there? If you do this, then you will get this result. It's conditional. Notice verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, notice here. These are very different kinds of covenants. Because of that word, if. Abraham is given an unconditional covenant. God says, I will do this. Moses receives this conditional covenant. I will do this for you, if you do this. And and notice what the people are doing, um, compared to what Abraham did. The people are not asleep. No, they are assembled before the Lord. They are part of this covenant ceremony where they are pledging to God their allegiance and their support. All that God has spoken, we will do. That's what they say. That's not what they do, but that's what they say. They're promising to live up to their end of the deal. Now, what I hope you see here in going through these conditional covenants and unconditional covenants is that there appears to be a problem if God is going to make... the same promises to the same group of people. And on the one hand, those promises are conditional. And on the other hand, they're unconditional. That would be like you, um, if, if you were to say you were renting your house to somebody and you said two things to that person, and maybe you even know this person, and you say to the person, look, we like you and all, but you've got to pay the rent. Every month, you've got to pay the rent or we'll kick you out. That's not unreasonable, right? You even said, look, we don't want to just give you a free ride. We want, to, we want you to actually work for it because that's good for you. So that's why we are making you pay the rent with the very real threat that you'll be cast out, kicked out of the house, if you don't pay it. You, you, you say that to them. It's conditional, right? And then the next day, you go and knock on the door and say, look, I will never, under any circumstances, kick you out of the house. You can live in this house forever. Now, if that's what you do, first three, three months, they pay the rent on time, in full, everything's fine. You've kept your conditional promise because they're paying the rent, and you've kept your unconditional promise because you're not kicking them out of the house. But then month four, they don't pay. Month five, they don't pay. Month six, they don't pay. Month seven, they pay. But eight, nine, 10, and 11, they don't pay. What are you going to do? You're stuck. You can't kick them out. But you can't not kick them out at the same time. You've you've made both promises to this person. Either way, you've got to go back on your word. Either way, something that you said isn't going to be true. Now, Israel missed their payment to God. It wasn't that they owed him cash. They owed him worship. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant. And they failed to do that. In uh, Ezekiel 36, it mentioned that they failed to do that because they murdered people in the land that God gave them and because they brought idols into the land and worshipped those idols instead of God. They failed to keep the promise. They failed to keep up their end of the deal. So now what is God going to do? If he lets them stay in the land, his honor is compromised because he has not enforced the conditional covenant. He's allowed them to be an unholy people and live near him. And that, that's not going to work. He's not holding them accountable. He's not being God. On the other hand, if he kicks them out, what becomes of his unconditional promise? What becomes of his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, where he says, this is your land forever. Where he says, I will always be there for you. God's faithfulness is then in question. And friends, God's faithfulness is the stability of the entire universe because God's word is what created the universe. And if God's word is not true, every molecule in the world explodes or something. That's why in verse 20 it says, when he scattered them in judgment, God's name is defiled. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why did God do that? Why did God put himself into a bind like that, where he, he has both this conditional covenant and this unconditional covenant? I read one commentator this week, and it was kind of hilarious. He wrote something very close to this. He said, little did God realize the problem he had gotten himself into. And I, I, yeah, I, I laughed as well. Um, and I thought, really? Really? This God, read Ezekiel 1. He is glorious beyond anything anybody can compare him to. He is amazing, he is all-powerful, and he also like, knows everything, that's, that's key there too. Do you think he was really that short-sighted to not know what was going to happen? He knew exactly what the people would do when he made a conditional covenant with him. And in fact, if we're to believe the Old Testament, which we should, we would see that it doesn't even take divine foreknowledge to know that they're going to break the covenant. I mean, from the moment the nation of Israel is conceived... Um, it's apparent that they're a problem child, <laughs> that if you give them rules, they're going to break them. And in fact, God even says that he chose them because they were the most stubborn people on the face of the earth. So God has picked out the most stubborn people on the face of the earth, promised them an unconditional covenant, knowing full well that he's also going to promise, an un- um, or unconditional covenant, promises a conditional covenant, knowing full well that they're going to break it. Why does God do that? Well, the answer is to showcase his power and his glory. God knows it's going to look like there's no way out. He knows that it's going to look like that it's checkmate for God's faithfulness. And then the whole universe will crumble. And God also knows that he is going to do exactly what he said he would do, but in a way that nobody thought possible. He's going to show that He alone is God. He will vindicate His holiness. Notice there. He will vindicate His holiness through them. The end of verse 23. And then all the nations will know that He is God when through them, through us as His people, He shows Himself to be holy. And how does He do that? Well, look at the passage that I said we'll focus on. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I hope that this passage means more to you now that we've looked at the context here. See, this is what God does. How does he keep his conditional covenant and his unconditional covenant at the same time? The answer is He removes the wickedness and stubbornness from the people and he transforms them into a people who will yearn to obey his rules and want to walk in his ways. That's what he does. That's what he does that nobody thought possible. He changes the people to make them holy. And this resolves the the tension between the conditional covenant and the unconditional covenant. On the one hand, God certainly keeps the unconditional, unilateral covenant made with Abraham, right? Because who is the one who does it all in this passage? God does. Notice in verse 27, there's that word, calls, there. God causes them to walk in these ways. God gives them the new heart. God guarantees the results. God takes it upon himself to bear the responsibility for bringing all of this to pass. God does it. But, at the same time, he, he also holds the people accountable. Because notice what they do. They really do keep God's law. They really do obey what he's called them to do. Now, you might be thinking, well, then does this override our freedom? Does this make it so that we're not actually free? Does this make it so it's not really holiness? Well, no, not in the least. There's two ways that you could think of God causing somebody to do something. One way is that you know he physically makes them do it. He supernaturally controls their bodies so that they, they don't want to, they can fight against it, but he makes them walk in the way that he has called them to do. That would be how, you know, maybe if your two-year-old is running away from you and you say, come, and then the child doesn't come and you just go and pick them up, you make them come against their will. God could cause people like that. And in, sometimes in the Bible he does. But generally... What he does, and what he does here, is he changes their nature. He makes them into a new kind of person who will yearn to do what they are called to do. And with that new nature, they are incredibly free, more free than they ever ever were before. They're free to act within the nature they have, and their nature is holy, so they will act in a holy way. This is not God curtailing our freedom or overruling our freedom. It is God giving us our freedom so that we can do what we are created to do in the image of God, that is, love him and obey him. Now, I think we'll understand this passage a little bit better if you just flip over one chapter. Actually, it's on the same page in the Bible, in the pew, uh, and look at Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 illustrates the truth of Ezekiel 36, And I'm going to read verses 1 through 14 of Ezekiel 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them. And behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he, this is God, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? What's going on there is God has given Ezekiel a vision of Ezekiel going into this valley and there's just dead bones laying all over the place. And God asks him, "Can these bones live?" It, it would be like, you, know, two medics walking out into a uh, civil war uh, graveyard now and saying, "Do you think we got here too late?" I mean, They're dead. They're obviously dead. And God asked Ezekiel a question, "Can these bones live?" And the answer Ezekiel gives is, O Lord, you know, which by the way is a great response to God when he asks you a ridiculous question. You don't commit either way. You know, God. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you. And will cause flesh to come upon you. And cover your skin and put breath in you. And you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel continues. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together. Bone to its bone. And I looked. And behold, there were sinews on them. And flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. By the way, breath in Hebrew is the same word for spirit, too. So it's the same concept. There was no spirit in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, son of man, and say to the breath, or spirit. Thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, spirit, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me. Said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. See, they're they're been cast out of the nation because of their unholiness. That's the problem. What's the solution? Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and Rise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and rise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. See how this truth illustrates what Ezekiel 36 talks about? And the nation of Israel is in a hopeless state. They are spiritually dead. And they are experiencing the consequence of their judgment. But God will act to be faithful to his promises. And how will he do that? He will rise them from the dead. He will give them his life. He will make them live. And there's another word to describe what God does here for the people. And that is resurrection. And that's what Jesus does. This passage points clearly to the work of Christ. He makes us live. This passage in Ezekiel 36 is used throughout the New Testament. It's one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. Let me just point out where it's used. You can look it up later if you want. Matthew 1, Jesus' name, Jesus, means uh, is given to him because he will save his people from his sins. That is, scholars think, a direct reference here to chapter 36 in Ezekiel, verse 29, where it says he will save the people from their uncleanness. Jesus' name comes from this idea that God will save his people from their sins, from their uncleanness. In John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that a teacher of the law as he is, he should have known that you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, where? How? And Jesus says, you should know that you must be born again, born of water and of spirit. And I think Jesus is referring to this passage that Nicodemus should have known, because it's a passage that takes water, the cleansing, the spirit, and new life, and puts them all together. And Jesus, by quoting that passage, is showing that he sees himself as the fulfillment of the promises in, e- in Ezekiel thirty-six. In Second Peter, I'm sorry, in Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, Paul uses Ezekiel thirty-six to explain his whole ministry philosophy. And 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2 are structured around the the passage in Ezekiel. The New Testament sees that Jesus was the one who came to give us the new heart and to cleanse us from all wickedness. To cleanse us from our sins. He did that by dying on the cross in our place. His substitutionary death for all those who believe cleanses them of their sin. If we believe in Jesus, we are cleansed, we are made new. God does not account our sins against us. He, he looks at us as if we bore the purity of Christ, as if we lived the righteous life of Christ. We are cleansed. And in Jesus' resurrection, we are given his resurrection life. We are raised with him so that we have his resurrection spirit living in us, able to walk in newness of life, as Kevin prayed earlier. Friends, as believers, we live with both these conditional and unconditional covenants. We live with the the reality that we must be holy. God is calling us to be holy. Without holiness, we will not see him. But we live with the promise that God will work in our hearts to create that which he requires. He will give us the new life by which we live and honor him. Now, friends, I hope you see that Ezekiel... 36 is a pivotal passage. I hope you you realize the force of it. For the rest of the time, I just want to flesh out for a little bit how we as believers live differently in light of this truth. And I just want to give you three things that we should do. First, we should look at the unfolding divine drama here, and we should be amazed. Remember, the goal of looking at Ezekiel 36, I said a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, was that we would see how our salvation is rooted in history. We would realize that it was planned. It wasn't that God saw our predicament and said, hey, I know what I'll do, I'll send my son, and then boom, and it happened. No, God laid a foundation for it uh, from the beginning of the world, really. And He laid the foundation for Jesus' coming by creating a tension that only Jesus would resolve. That's how God you know prepared for Jesus. He created a situation that only Jesus could fulfill what needed to happen. Now, recognizing that, how does that help you and me in our daily life? Well, I don't know about you, but as a pastor and as a father, I might have from time to time just, you know, a little bit of of drama or conflict or tension in my life. Maybe just a little bit. Imagine you have from time to time some of that as well, right? We all have tension and drama in our lives. And and sometimes I'm tempted to, you know, think, why me? Why is this happening to me? Which is really code for, it's all about me. I'm the center of the the whole drama of the universe. And this passage shows me, I'm dead wrong in that, it it talks about a bigger tension, a, a more exciting drama a deeper conflict than what's going on in my immediate experience. It's what God is unfolding throughout all of history. And we see that it is resolved, not in me. It's resolved in Jesus. When he comes and does what looked like nobody could do, but is exactly what God said would happen. And friends, we need to then keep our eyes on God's story and not ours. We need to look at the greatest... Drama in in our lives is not just what we've experienced in the last twenty four hours. We need to look at what God is doing throughout all of history, at His story, and then we need to tie our lives to that story and just stand in amazed at what He does. We need to look at the unfolding drama and be amazed by that. That's really the main thing I want to tell you. Two other things, implications of that. One, we need to recognize that. Living based on the law is insufficient to uh, bring us into holiness. But dep- rather, I should say, depending upon the law to obey the law is not an approach that will work for holiness. Uh, let me just point out why I say that. The support here is in the second half of verse 26. See that there? I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What does that really mean? Well, for years, I had taken it to mean that God's going to take away our stubborn, hard heart and give us, you know, something fleshly, moldable. But that's not exactly what it means here. I did a word study where I looked up every time, almost every time, stone is used in the Bible. It's used a lot. And never once is it used as a metaphor for hardness of heart. But often it is used for the tablets of stone that the law was written upon. And Paul even uses it that way in 2 Corinthians 3. So, stone here refers to the law. And heart, when the Bible talks about your heart, it talks about, really, uh, who you are way deep down inside. It talks about what, what, what is that out of which you live. The Bible says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. We live out of our hearts. We speak out of our hearts. We desire things, want things, do things, will things out of our hearts. So, heart of stone means... Living out of a law-based system. Living out of a system where our relationship with God is built on the principle we must keep the law in order to find life. Do this and you will live as the Bible talks about the law on the conditionality. The law says we need to have complete obedience first and then we'll get life. After we've obeyed, we'll be able to live. But Jesus comes and, or this verse says, that he takes out the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Flesh there means life. And that means he takes out that system of do this and you will live and gives us live. He gives us life at the very outset. He gives that at the center. Now, what does that mean to do? What does that mean for us? I know that might have been a little bit theoretical, but, but how does it apply it means that if we kind of live our lives with the principle, just tell me what to do and I'll do it, we're not going to be able to find real life. We're not going to be able to do it. The principle of do this and you will live, the Bible tells us, doesn't work because we don't have it in of ourselves to be able to do that which is required. In a similar way that I sketched out uh, religious rob, the law actually creates a situation where we want to o- disobey it. The Bible says that when God added the law, it increased the transgressions. How did it increase the transgressions? Well, because we, we don't like to obey that law. We, we depend upon the law, and then it eats us up inside, and then we rebel against the law. That's human, sinful human nature. So just knowing what the law requires is not going to be enough to lead you in holiness. Uh, it'd be like this. Um, I think I could say with with a high degree of certainty that I know what it would take for me to win the Olympic marathon in the summer. I know what it would take. I'd have to run 26.2 miles in under two hours. I know exactly what it would take. Will I be able to do it? I've never run 26.2 miles in my life. It's not going to happen. Knowing what I need to do does not give me the resources in and of myself to do it. See, the, that's where the law fails us. Not because it doesn't aim us in the right direction. I know exactly what I would need to do to run the marathon. That's, knowing it doesn't, it's not that it's wrong. It's the fact that it doesn't give the resources to be able to do it. Notice also here that when they had the heart of stone, when they had that heart of law, were they obeying the law? No, they weren't. They were in a place of rebellion when they had the heart of stone, when they had the heart of the law. The heart of the law, they were actively rebelling against God. They need to get the heart of flesh, the the principle of live, and then they walk in obedience. A relationship with God based upon rules does not lead to life. It doesn't lead to obeying those rules. So friends, when you're up against a situation and you realize, I need to obey God. Obeying God is really hard here. What do you cling to? Do you cling to, okay, this is the rule, this is what I must do? Or do you cling to the person of Christ? Do you say, I need to know him? I need to pursue him. What do you take refuge in? I'm a person who knows what the law says. I'm not one of those people out there who don't even know the law. No. No. The Bible says over and over again, knowing the law is is not going to make you a set-apart people. You have to obey the law. And to obey the law, you need resources that come not through the law, but through the Spirit. Friends, what do you aim at? What is your goal? Is it simply to have a record of obedience? Or is it to know Christ? It's quite sobering that in the book of Galatians, Paul tells us that it's possible to have a real changed heart, a new life live by the Spirit, have the Spirit living in us, and then yet go back to a law-based approach. We can begin by the Spirit and then be trying to be perfected by the flesh, and that is death. It, it, it zaps our joy and destroys our Christian life. So don't do that. To obey God and live according to his rules, don't depend on simply you knowing what those rules are. Cling to Christ. That's where the resources are for for you to live in a way that honors him. Second, we've already hinted at this. God's work has priority over our work. Again, we've we've explained that. I just want to say, what does that mean for us in the Christian life? Well, notice in Ezekiel 36 where repentance is. Where does repentance show up? One commentator I read said that they struggled with Ezekiel 36 because usually in the Old Testament... The people are saved after they cry out to God. I mean, think of the book of Judges. The people get themselves into a fix because they're not obeying God. Nations come in, and then they cry out to God, Oh, Lord, save us. Oh, Lord, save us. We are wrong. And then God comes in and saves them. That's the normal pattern that we see in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36 breaks that pattern. Because what we see first is God saves them from all their uncleanness. And then, notice verse 31, Then you will remember your evil deeds. Then you will repent and cry out to the Lord, saying, you know, I am a wicked person. Thank you for saving me. It switches the order. Repentance comes after God has saved them. Why? It's because what he saves them from. He saves them from their hardness of heart of them not wanting to repent. He gives them the new heart first. In other words, he saves the people from themselves. And the only way he can be saved saved from themselves is if he changes them on the inside. Therefore, God's work has priority. Notice again the active verbs in here. God will do it. He will give the new heart. He will give the spirit. He cleanses. Do we have a role? Yes. We walk in newness of life. We walk in a way that honors him. But it's based on the work that he does. Friends, the New Testament has the same idea. Jesus says... Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from him, we're dead. But abide in me, Jesus says, and you will bear much fruit. We need the life of God to change our nature so that we will obey. Friends, this affects the way that I pray. And I encourage you to affect the way you pray too. I don't just pray, Lord, help me. Lord, teach me. I do that. But I also pray, Lord, calls me. Lord, make me. Lord, give me the heart that longs for these things. Because God's work takes priority over our work. So we, therefore, must depend upon God for him to work. That way we work. Now, friends, I know this can be a little scary because it means we're not in control. We kind of gravitate to that law system, do this and you will live, because we can be the ones in the driver's seat. We can choose are we going to do it or not do it, and then get the result that we want. Nicodemus thought it was scary too when Jesus brought this to bear on his life. He was arguing with Jesus. Jesus says you must be born again. That is, you must have life first. And he starts talking about how can you, how can you do that? How can I go back inside my, my mother and be born again? Jesus is getting the point at him. You can't make it happen. But only if he had only known that he was talking to the one right there who could make it happen. Friends, this truth is only scary if we think that we've got to be in control. But if we recognize that God is in control, it becomes liberating and freeing because we see that he is very willing and very able to give us that life. God is the author of the spiritual life we need, and he wants to give it to us. So pray to him, look to him, trust him, depend upon him. Let's pray.